The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's open our Bibles this afternoon to Exodus chapter 36. And we're ready to pass on to another of the tabernacle significant pictures of Christ. This is the veil of the inner sanctuary, and it is a picture of the incarnation of the Son of God. It is a picture of God in the flesh. We have just two verses of scripture to read about making this veil. In the 35th and 36th verses of chapter 36, And he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen with cherubims made he it of cunning work. And he made thereunto four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast for them four sockets of silver. The veil, that is a hanging, it's a, it's a curtain that separated the inner compartments of the tent. The tabernacle was entered through a hanging curtain that was on the eastern end, and that curtain was a door. It was the entrance, not a swinging door that we would think of, but rather a thick, very substantial curtain that was pushed aside on one end, and that allowed the priest to enter. And then when the priest entered the tabernacle, he was in a room that was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, 15 feet to the ceiling. And in that part of the tabernacle, there was the golden lampstand that was on his left as he goes in. That's on the south side. The table of showbread was across the way. On the right side, that's the north side. And then directly in front of him was the altar of incense. And it stood close to this veil that's made of blue and purple and scarlet. And it was made of fine linen with cherubim that were interwoven into the fabric. The Bible says that it was of cunning work. That means it was intricately made. It was made to be a showpiece. It was just a marvelous example of highly skilled craftsmen. And it hung as a divider between the two rooms in the tabernacle and separated them from each other. So there is another room that's directly behind. That is a 15-foot cube, equal dimensions of 15 feet in each direction. That part... Of the tabernacle, as you know, was the Holy of Holies, also known as the Most Holy Place. And I would dare say that it was the holiest place on earth, the holiest place that was known to man. It was in both the tabernacle and the temple. There is no one who's ever seen such a sacred place as the Holy of Holies. I do know in certain religions, of course, there are places that are called holy. Muslims have their holy places. And sadly, one of the holiest of their sites is the most recognizable landmark in in the city of Jerusalem, and that is the Dome of the Rock that's built on the Temple Mount. Um, These pictures that we have for you now, uh, that's that's the Dome of the Rock, the mosque that stands there right on top of the Temple Mount. And in this next picture, you can see how it dominates the skyline of Jerusalem, and there in the forefront of it is the... Uh, Western Wall, this is the most sacred place to the Jews, 
And that's the place that they consider their holy place, so to speak, now. But it's the Muslims that have the most prominent place. And that's right on top of the Temple Mount, near to the place where Solomon's temple was built. This is the place that they believe that Adam was created. They believe that this is where Adam, or rather Abraham, sacrificed or attempted to make the sacrifice of Isaac. Some believe, some of them believe this is the place where Mohammed was taken up into heaven. But even at that, it's not their most holy place. The holiest place that they have is in Mecca. That's where, um, where Mohammed was born. But of all those places... Of course, the the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, that is the most sacred place of all. That's because the tabernacle and the holy place were made of, and the furnishings of it were made after a pattern of things that are in heaven. And the pattern for the Holy of Holies was the throne room of God. And yet these sacred places of Israel were not considered shrines uh, like those of false religions. They were not a place of idolatry where symbols were worshipped. Our God is a transcendent God. He rules over the earth. He rules over the entire universe. So he's not a God of locality like the heathen gods the Canaanites believed. When Solomon built the temple on that temple mount, uh, he talked about the impossibility of building a place where God would live. Paul stood on Mars Hill in Athens and he was surrounded by magnificent Greek temples to multiple gods, and this is what he said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So the tabernacle and the holy of holies was not as the places where heathens worship. But nonetheless, it was an astounding visual that appealed to the senses and something that Israel could relate to. Now, we're going to discuss the Holy of Holies. We'll discuss what was in the Holy of Holies at a later time. But for now, we want to talk about the veil. It separated the two compartments from in the tent of the tabernacle. And there are many Christians who know very little about the tabernacle. We've we've talked about that sometimes during this study. I've run across very few that could even give a remote stab at the details that we've discussed in these past few months. But it seems that even serious Bible students are not familiar with these symbolisms. And as I, as I said at the beginning of the study, they see little to no significance in types and figures or whether these are truly types of Christ. But even those that are ignorant of types and figures and may even insist these things aren't typed, still most Christians know about the veil. They know where there is symbolism in the veil. They know, of course, what was behind the veil. Because in that secret compartment, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Um, The Ark was in that place until the temple was torn down by the Babylonians and all the articles and furnishings of the uh, temple at that time were stolen and taken to Babylon during the Babylonian captivity. But the whereabouts of the Ark isn't known, and when we get to that part, we'll talk more about it. But tonight, it's the veil, and most Christians do recognize the uniqueness of it, and they get that uniqueness from the story of the crucifixion, that when Christ was crucified, the Bible says that this veil was torn in two. 
Now, in Bible times, when it was in the temple, it wasn't, the veil wasn't the size that you have in the tabernacle, not a 15-foot curtain, but probably a 60-foot tall curtain. And uh, that curtain was torn into by an invisible hand. And the Bible makes a very uh, pointed reference to that, a very specific point about that veil being torn by an invisible hand. And that tearing has a remarkable symbolism for our religion of Christianity. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the tearing of the veil. And then in the book of Hebrews, there are three references to the veil. So there isn't anyone that could deny that the veil is a symbol because the Bible tells us very clearly what it was. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So the veil stands for Christ's flesh. It's a symbol of his incarnation. It's the way that we have access to God. And while the veil provides access, at first it doesn't provide access. It stands as a barrier. There's no access that's given to the innermost sanctuary into the very presence of God because of this veil. And so the priest, as he entered the tabernacle, he goes in through the door on the eastern end, but then on the western end, there's this curtain. There's the veil. That's a barrier that he can't see beyond. Now, this afternoon, I want to begin a discussion of the veil and how it unveils other aspects of Christ and his work. Now, we begin with verse number 35, and a discussion of the coloration of the veil. Verse 35 says, And he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen. Now, we're very familiar with colors in the tabernacle. We've discussed that many times. Colors play a very important part of the symbolism. On the outside, there was the white linen fence that enclosed the entire area and formed a courtyard. And the fence set that area apart, and that was to limit trespass on what was sacred ground. And so the white linen showed that it's, that area is pure, that it's holy. The gate into the courtyard was made of the same colors that we see in verse 35. There's blue and purple and scarlet. And, of course, those were sewn into a background of white linen. Then entering the tabernacle through the curtain that made the door of the tabernacle, there are the same colors... Then inside the tabernacle, the first covering that you see that makes the ceiling has these same colors, blue, purple, and scarlet. And then the priest who went about his duties on the Day of Atonement was dressed in clothes that had the colors of blue, purple, and scarlet. And as we see in verse number 35, these are the colors of the veil that stood before the Holy of Holies. And we've noticed that in each of the scriptures where these colors are listed, they always come in the same order, blue, purple, and scarlet. And we're reminded by the colors that these things are too far above us, that they represent the heavens, they represent God in heaven. Blue is about Christ and his heavenly character. He is the God who came down from heaven. And so the first vision that we catch of Christ in the tabernacle is that he's not of this world, that he is from above. He is God who is manifest in the flesh. The Jews questioned his origin they disputed it, especially when they knew that he grew up in Nazareth. But Jesus told them very clearly that he was not of this world, that he came down from the Father in heaven. 
Now remember when we talked about the table of showbread, that was a picture of the true manna that came down from heaven. And Jesus said, He is that manna, and those that partake of Him will eat and live forever. And I remind you of the words that Jesus said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So do you see, he said the bread is his flesh, and this veil that separated the two compartments is a symbol of his flesh, that he came down from heaven to be made flesh and to offer his body as a sacrifice for our sins. He gave his flesh. In other words, he gave his body, gave his life for the life of the world. So the scripture says to believe in him, that is to partake of his flesh. Then there's also purple, that relates to kingship. Purple is the color of royalty. There's scarlet, that's the red color that relates to sacrifice. It's the color of blood. And you can look at those parts, those colors and others of our studies and you'll get more discussion of them. But I want to return for, uh, in this lesson, to the color blue. And I want to expand on that a bit because... It's the contrast of things that are in heaven and that Christ came down from heaven to become like man. That's the most significant part of the veil as it relates to color. Jesus was a man. He was called the son of man. As I said, the Jews knew that he was Jesus of Nazareth and they called him that. And those references are used to show there is no mistake that he was a man. Years ago when we studied First John... Uh, this was a, a sticking point for the Apostle John, something that he needed to expound on. He needed to address the subject that Jesus was a man. Because in his day, the, the seeds of Gnosticism were growing, the undertones of it were there, and chief among the heresies of the Gnostics was the denial of the manhood, that is, the humanity of Christ. Now, most modern cults deny his deity, but that wasn't the error of the early Gnostics. They denied his flesh. They denied his manhood. And they taught that the Spirit of God just came down and inhabited the body of man for a time and then left the man at the crucifixion. Well, John was quick to pounce on that error. We just read in the gospel account the record of Jesus saying that he was from heaven and that he was flesh. And then later, of course, the story continues in the book of John until you see Christ on the cross and he's dying and he's dead and then resurrected in the same body in which he was crucified. John said, anyone who doesn't confess that Jesus came in the flesh is antichrist. And all of that is correction of errors of those who said Christ was not truly man and God. And then at the beginning of his epistle in 1 John, John provided the proof of his flesh. He wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So John said, We, the apostles, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. We are witnesses that he was God who came in the flesh. We are witnesses that he was eternal life that was with the Father and then manifested in the flesh to us. 
And the scriptures make that a point, an undeniable point, that Jesus was a man. And so we have to follow that through, and we need to see why he was not an ordinary man, why he was such a unique man. And he was a man that was unlike any that has lived, and one with abilities that none but him possess. And so I want to emphasize that to you. I want to emphasize to anyone who listens to us through media, there is a reason that we are here There is a reason that we're never flippant about Christ. There's a reason that we are forbidden to use his name except only in reverence and in worship. And so if it's common for you to use the name of Christ in your ordinary conversation, you need to throw it out of your conversation because Jesus doesn't belong in vulgar, profane speech. He's not an ordinary man. I had a conversation with a member not long ago who said something in surprise, prefaced his surprise with, geez, you don't need me to explain that. Get that out of your vocabulary. Jesus was a man, a unique man. He was the man from above. Now we notice first that seeing blue, the heavenly color, and relating it to Christ's flesh, that in this is seen the duty of man. Now, the next picture that we have is from our slide series on the tabernacle. This is the artist's conception of the veil. And as you can see, the blue dominates the picture, although I, I'm sorry it's not as brilliant in this, with this projection system I think it was, and I don't think that drawing is as nearly as beautiful as this veil was. It was probably much more vibrant and more notable as an exquisite piece of art. But as stated, blue, that that is a color also used in the priest's garments, and the priest was a man. But the high priest wasn't the only one in Israel who wore blue. Blue was a color that was sewn into the clothing of the everyday wear of the Israelites, and they had to like blue because they wore it all the time. The duty of man is strict obedience to God's law. God's law reflects his character And in the sanctification of Israelites and in the sanctification of Christians, there is a demand of holiness by observance to the law. Obeying the law shows that we have God's character. Now, we understand that we're not saved by the law, but we are saved by what the law represents. The prophet Micah said to Israel, He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And Micah could have very well said that another way. He could have just said, God showed you that you are to obey his law, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That is an expression of the major components of God's law. Now, anyone who reads the Old Testament knows that Israel was demanded They must follow the rules. They must go by the regulations that God placed on them. They weren't to deviate from any of God's commands. And we we see when, when God told Moses to be diligent to make everything in the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown, we see that strict obedience. You remember why God told him to do this? Well, it's because all of these things are symbols of Christ. And so to go off and to make anything that's not according to that pattern in heaven is to upset and destroy the type of Christ who would come from heaven. So Israel was given these dozens of commands and they were to strictly obey all of them to the letter of the law. So in the everyday 
life of the Israelite, they were constantly reminded of the God they served. The tabernacle, just looking at it, was a reminder. The tabernacle was in the center of the camp. The location of the tabernacle was the focal point of all direction in every way that you would go. The direction to any place began with the tabernacle as the starting place and everything goes out from there. The smoke that ascended from the tabernacle during the day and the fire that was over the tabernacle at night, that was always a reminder of the God they served. So these rules, obeying rules, being obedient, that, that idea is always present with the Israelite. And I want to show you an example of it. If you'll turn to Numbers 15, there's a story, and, and you know this story. It's the story of a man who is gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Here's a man who ignored the command that no work is to be done on the Sabbath. And in Numbers chapter 15, and beginning at verse number 32, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness... They found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in ward. That, that means that they confined him. They put him up uh, sort of like a temporary jail. Because it was not declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, This man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones. And he died as the Lord commanded Moses. We look at that and we think that is rigid. There's no wiggle room for this poor fellow who must have been a little bit cold. He needed a fire. Maybe he was hungry and he wanted to cook. You know, we, we just go and turn up the thermostat and get our heat. We go to the stove and just turn the knob and we get a flame. But here's a man that has to go gather sticks. No sticks, he has no warmth. So we look at that and we say, that seems so harsh. But that's an example of how the holy God is and, and how he operates, that there is no sin that is trivial with God. Now, we're tempted to think that our sins aren't too great. We don't do the big things. But there is no sin trivial with God. And Israel lived under this rigidity of the law because they were a theocratic nation. But I want you to notice something. The story goes on in verse number 37. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe... That ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which ye go whoring. That ye may remember, do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. Now here's the point that I want to come to in the story. Every person in Israel was required to sew a ribbon of blue around the border of their clothes. And that was to remind them of the holy God. That the true God of heaven is the God they served. So they had this reminder of obedience every day. And so the next person that went out to gather sticks on the Sabbath would look at that ribbon of blue and he remembered, he would remember, the God of heaven demands obedience. When the priest approached the tabernacle, the most prominent color he saw was blue. 
And so he stepped under the strictness of obedience to God's commands. Now, it's interesting that that beautiful blue hanging on that curtain, uh, seeing that and how intricately designed that it was, it didn't attract him to go in. He wasn't tempted to go behind that veil. Oh, that blue was there to warn him. He dared not enter without divine permission and then only in the exact way that God said they could come. So there's this duty to serve God. And we're no less under the command of obedience today, no less than the Israelites. In fact, we are under greater obligation. There are some preachers who insist that the law has been set aside. They insist that we don't live under law, we live under grace. Well, that's true, but only as far as the sense that grace saves us and not the law. But we are most certainly under the law of the Ten Commandments because God still demands holiness and righteousness. And God's holiness and righteousness is found in the law. And that demand for us to be holy is greater than those of the Israelites because we don't live in the shadows of types and figures. We live in the reality of it. We live in the exposure of of previously unseen things and mysteries that are unveiled. So we have greater responsibility to the law than them. The law never saved anyone, and so we don't look to our ability to keep the law. Uh, That's not our justification. And anybody who looks to it for their justification not only won't be saved, but they'll be utterly condemned by that effort. So the law, that's the spike that's driven into the heart that kills those who come to it for salvation. But then on the other hand, the Word of God says the law is just and holy and good. And what it does, it points the sinner to the perfect law keeper. And that is Jesus Christ. Now when we come to Christ and receive Him by faith, then the law becomes the instrument of our sanctification. And we have to be very careful how we handle that. Because this instrument of sanctification is only effectual by the power of the Holy Spirit in it, not by us. Man's duty is to obey God's law. Now, those who deny that are called antinomians. That's a term that means against law. And antinomians are as much despised by God as a hard-nosed Pharisaical Jew who wants to keep every single point to the, to the nth degree and try to make himself holy by it. So the flesh of Jesus Christ... And the blue in the veil reminds us that God that came down from heaven was perfect. And what he did was to earn imputational righteousness by keeping God's law. Well, this story in Numbers helps us to better understand the background of Jesus' complaints against the Pharisees. Now, it's good for us to connect the Old and New Testaments for background and context. So now if you turn to Matthew chapter 23... Uh, You'll recognize this as the chapter of Jesus' scathing indictment of the Pharisees. And as you know, they were famous for their meticulous attention to the law. So outwardly, at least, they, they put on a show that they were the best students, the best adherents to the law, while others in Israel were far beneath their standard of holiness. They obeyed the letter of the law, or so it seemed that they did, but they didn't know anything about the spirit of the law. Notice this interesting verse that connects us to God's command back there in Numbers 15. Matthew 23, verse 5. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. 
They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. You see the last part? They enlarge the borders of their garments. Why is that so important? I mean, so what? So what? They put a little extra length at the bottom of their clothes. That looks like a good thing, especially if you think about some of the girls. Why did they enlarge the borders? Well, it goes back to Numbers 15. The, the, the border is Jesus' reference to this ribbon of blue. And the Pharisees were still obeying that command to make this ribbon of blue, only they thought that they could up the ante of, of holiness and make themselves appear more righteous than they really were, so they would make this border go halfway up the side. And I suppose the border became nearly the whole garment. And it was there for a show of righteousness. If anyone was holy, they were more holy. They believed in salvation by the law, so they make the law more prominent. The Pharisees had long since lost the meaning of the law. They never understood the purpose of why God gave it. Because if they understood God's holiness, they would understand there was nothing that they could do that could approach it. Now you know that Paul was still still dealing with this, with the Jews. Um, he dealt with this in Romans, then again in Galatians. In every Jewish synagogue that he visited, he was dealing with these issues of the law. And perhaps Paul was sick of seeing blue. Maybe he never put on a blue shirt. He always wore white shirts. And that's kind of a funny thing. I was thinking about this as I was working on the message. There was a platform rule. When I first came to this church years ago, platform rule said only white shirts. No colored shirts on the platform. And do you know that that grew out of the same old fundamental attitude of role of rules and for righteousness and sanctification? Well, I never got that memo. Nobody actually told me about that. Now I wear white shirts most of the time only because I like white shirts. And of course, it's because white proves I'm cleaner and whiter and holier than you. So that's why I do that. But here's the thing about it. The, the tabernacle was not there to prove the holiness of the people. It's about Christ. It's about his satisfaction to the law. He was made flesh and he came to this earth to satisfy the law. Uh, he satisfied the law that exposes all of our imperfections and everything that God has against us. He was blue and he was holy. He was righteous from heaven. Well, these people only wore blue to show them, not Christ. That's the mistake of the Pharisees. They wore blue to show them and they rejected Christ, who is the God-man from heaven. Each of God's law is a weight. Laws is a weight. It's a burden to those that are without Christ. They point to our sinful, helpless condition. And thus Paul wrote, the law is given to you to instruct you to come to Christ. So the blue is a reminder of man's duty to keep all of God's laws perfectly. But then at the same time, it makes it clear that the demands are too great for us to keep. Widening the border, so to speak, only increases our condemnation. And so it is with religious systems, whether it's the Pharisees with their numerous additions to the law or Catholicism with their sacraments or even independent Baptists with manufactured sanctification. The wrong approach to the law deepens condemnation. It never lifts anybody out of it.
So, how are we going to be brought out from under the curse of the law? How, how do we know that we're just not out here gathering sticks that'll just become our funeral pyre? Well, only someone higher, someone holier, someone heavenly can satisfy all the law's demands. He is the unique man that came from beyond the blue of heaven. Now, the other colors, those tell us other aspects of the character of Christ, but the blue informs us where this unique person came from. He is the God-man. Well, in the fabrication of the veil with the colors of blue and purple and scarlet, there's another interesting illustration of what happened to man and what presents a barrier to shut him out of God's presence. These are the cherubim that are sewn into the curtain. I don't have time to explore that aspect, not in the way that I'd like to this afternoon. So we're going to hold on to that part for the next time. Thus far, what we've seen are barriers to entrance. God's presence is there behind that veil. The brilliant light of the Shekinah glory is behind there, but the priest, as he walked in, couldn't see it. So first he's reminded of his sin. He sees blue and he wears blue which is to remind him of God's heavenly character, reminds him that he's nothing like God. He's nothing like God in character. He wears blue, but he is not blue. But then standing there in front of the veil is his help. Standing there is the altar of incense, and it will have blood placed on its horns, blood and death and intercession. That's necessary to get through the veil. And that's the other side of the story. And we're going to get to that. And we'll see how that Christ provided a way in. Now once again, as Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 10, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. That's about Jesus Christ, who made a way for us to get through that veil into the presence of God. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Your mercy and grace, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, the only one who provides access to the Father. Thank you, Lord, for lessons that we learn out of the Old Testament that teach us about your holy character. How that while we are to aspire to be like you and we are to keep all of your laws because they reflect your character, yet we know at the very best we are still sinful people. We have no goodness of our own. And the only way that we will ever be righteous is to have Jesus Christ keep the law for us and then give that perfect obedience to us as a gift. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us. Bless our people and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 
6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.